Okay, good morning everyone, as always. Good morning, Gigi. A few housekeeping uh, announcements. First of all, a reminder, the uh, men's afternoon call has begun every Monday and Wednesday afternoon. Men are invited to uh, come take advantage. This Thursday night, there's a special conference call uh, I'm doing together with an incredible therapist, Naomi Berger, on the topic of from the boardroom, B-O-R-E, to the bedroom, the significance, the importance of healthy intimacy in a healthy marriage. It's for marriages of all ages and lengths of time. You could call in from the privacy of your home and listen as a couple with anonymity from the other callers. All the details are on a flyer in uh, the lobby. And this coming Shabbos is our annual APAC weekend, which will feature not uh, politics and elections, which I think we've uh, all had our fill of, but will focus more on Israeli innovation, breakthrough, progress, technology. And it's a wonderful weekend with a Friday night dinner. It's not too late, but it's getting close to sign up for the Friday night dinner. Again, details are in the lobby. This, this uh, Shabbos, we have the great privilege of reading Parsha's Vayera. And as always, we'll do an overview of the Parsha and then delve into specific psukim together. So we're on page 78 in the Art Scroll, Stone Chumash. And our Parsha begins with last week's Parsha left off. The end of last week's Parsha, Avram Avinu is charged. It's incredible, we can't even imagine it. But to give himself a circumcision as well as to his son Yishmael. Yitzchak is not yet born. Yitzchak will be the first to have his bris on the eighth day. Avram is recovering. We know it's the third day after the surgery, which is the worst. Avram is recovering and nevertheless he's sitting outside his tent because for him the pain of not helping others is a greater pain than the recovery of the surgery. It's an incredible, incredible idea. Many people have a surgery, some people stub their toe, and for six months they can't care about anyone, think about anyone, ask about anybody. The world revolves around them because they stub their toe and the whole world has come to a standstill. Avram Avinu takes a sharp knife, a rock, circumcises himself. There was no, there was no anesthesia, there were no sutures. We don't have to get into gory details. But Avram Avinu circumcises himself and says, if, if you ask me not to care about people, you want me to close the doors to my tent and retreat into my own life, that's more painful. That is more difficult, more suffering for me than the pain of the surgery itself. So there he is. The three seeming men walk up to him. He doesn't know at that time they're angels. And Avram interrupts the conversation he's having with the Ribbonu Shalom. I made it, I made it warmer, Yechavet. And Chazal understand from here that that it's greater to host, to entertain, to receive a visitor who needs you than it is to even talk to the Almighty. We've discussed this in the past. You know, you picture the scene. It's hard to even imagine. Avram is talking to the King of Kings, the Melech Malchi Amlachim. And he sees these three men walking up and he has the audacity. He says to the Almighty, God, would... Could, could you give me just two minutes? Would you mind waiting here? He doesn't say to God, you know, you're free to go now, let's pick this up sometime in the future. I know you don't have future past, you're everywhere, but you know, we'll pick this up sometime in what I perceive as the future. He doesn't say that. What does he say to Hashem? God, if, if it works for you, would you mind just waiting here? Could you just, just give me five minutes? I just have to give them something to eat and something to drink. I don't know who they are, but I have to take care of them for five minutes and we'll pick it up. I'll come back to you in five. Do you mind? And the commentators are all troubled. What? Do you mind? This is the King of Kings. This is the Rebona Shalom, the creator of the universe, the infinite, omnipotent, all-powerful, the apex. 
of all of Jewish life and living is to achieve a level of feeling one is before the Almighty. To be in the presence of the Shekhinah is what we live for, it's what we strive for. All of Mesil Sisharim, the 12 steps of Mesil Sisharim, culminate in Ruach HaKodesh. The whole idea is to feel that you're in the presence of the Shekhinah. Avram, who achieves a conversation with the Shekhinah, says, God, could just give me three minutes. Do you mind? What's going on here? The Salon of says very beautifully, in his Sefer Nesivos Shalom, he says, Avram Avina, he asks a series of questions. I'm not going to take you through that whole piece right now. But one of his questions is, where did Avram know that from? Yes, Chazal derive Chazal understand and conclude, you see from here, it's greater to host people, ease to even talk to God. But Avram didn't read that Maimra Chazal. Avram couldn't say, God, listen, would you give me five minutes? It says in the Gemara, on Daf, it says in Shulchan Aruch and Simon that I should interrupt, so could you give me five? How did he know? How did he intuit? How did he have the audacity and the brazenness? And he understood something which was very simple. Is it audacious or brazen if you're talking to your mother or father and your brother or sister come walking along and they're thirsty and they're hungry and they're tired and they need something? Does it take a genius to realize that your mom or dad are happy for the conversation to be interrupted so you could take care of your sibling, their other child? It's not so brazen and it's not so audacious and it's not so novel. It actually makes a lot of sense. Avram Avinu understood Olam Chesed Yibana. God created the world for loving kindness. It is the essence of Tachlis of why we are here. It took till Avram for that Midah to be introduced to the world, but Avram understood it. And he understood that humanity is part of one big family. We are Tzalem Elokim, we are children of the Almighty. And when a brother or sister walks up to us hungry or tired or in need of any form of hospitality or help, when we help that sibling, we are giving the greatest nachas ruach to our parent. As parents and grandparents, does anything give you greater nachas than seeing the loyalty among your children? Does anything give you greater nachas than knowing how one of your children helped another, stepped in, anticipated, supported, provided, helped? So Avram Avinu understood. It's not that oh, there's a value conflict, which one should I do? Let's have a whole chabura. Let's do an analysis. It's ridiculous. If you say to your parent, could you give me five minutes? My sibling, your other child, needs my help. Would the parents say, what a chutzpah? Where's your covered for me? Let them suffer five more minutes. You're in the middle of talking to me. They'd say, gladly, I'll wait as long as you need. And that's what Avram understood, is that Part of the tachas of life and what it means to be students of Avram Avinu is to learn from the legacy of giving nachas ruach to Hashem. Of always asking, if Hashem is our Father in Heaven and we are His children, what will give Him nachas in the way that I interact with His other children? It turns out these were not three men, these were three angels, but Avram didn't know that. The Beis HaLevi has a beautiful insight. Yubiyashaber Salavichik, the Rav's great-grandfather, Beis HaLevi says... Why is Avram praised till the hilt for his Achnasus Orchim? Lot too received these very same angels when they go to Stom and they knock on the door and they come to warn Lot, it's time to get out. Lot too is hospitable. Why is Avram, we hold in such high esteem, and Lot is a villain of the Jewish people? And the Beis HaLevi says the answer is very simple. When Avram took them in, he had no idea who they were. He thought they were these anonymous wandering nomads 
covered in dust, worth nothing, couldn't cut a check, couldn't provide support, couldn't advance his efforts in the world. He took care of them because whatever their background, whatever the socioeconomic status, he saw people who needed. When Lot took them in, who did Lot see in front of him? He knew they were angels. Who's not going to host an angel? An angel knocks on your door and you're going to say, go to the next one? Of course you're going to host the angel. So superficially, Avram and Lot seem to practice the same Achnas Zorchem. And in fact, Rashi tells us that Lot learned that quality from his uncle Avraham. But if you dig beneath the surface, you realize there are some people, you call them and you say, you know, the chief rabbi of the world, the Gadol be Yisrael, the famous celebrity, the great scholar in residence is coming. Would you mind hosting them? Absolutely. My pleasure. No problem. Listen, someone's coming. Their mother lives in Boca West. She's not religious. They need a place for sure. Someone's coming. The uncle's in the hospital. Someone's coming. They got stuck here in business. Could you take... The- no, I'm sorry. We don't have room. I'm sorry. We can't take them. So there's two forms of Achnas Azorchem. You could be hospitable for the sake of the guests, in which case it makes no difference who the guests are. They need help. Your offer to be hospitable. Or you could be hospitable because it advances your agenda. You love the social currency of being able to say that you hosted so-and-so. Lot practiced the second time of Hachnas Zorchem. Avram practiced the first. Okay, let's keep going. These angels come. They have uh, three messages for Avram and Sarah. And uh, we know it's Pesach time and Avram acts with alacrity and zeal and he provides for them and they come to give the great news that Sarah, who is barren and an advanced age and in fact has no womb, is miraculously going to conceive and she's going to have a child. And if you look, I'm not going to talk about it now, we've discussed it in the past. Again, nobody plugs themselves as much as I do in this Parsha class, but you could listen online to all the previous year uh, Parsha class. But we talked about the fact that at the end of last week's Parsha, Avram hears he's going to have a child and how does he respond? How does he react? He's mitzachik. Sarah hears, she laughs. Avram's not criticized and Sarah's ripped to shreds. And later, when it's time to give this miraculous baby a name, what name do they give? Yitzchak. Somehow memorializing the fact. So why was Sarah criticized? Avram's not. And if this is such a bad reaction, why do you memorialize it in the very name of this child? We spoke about the difference between true joy and a joy that's laced with cynicism and sarcasm. We talked about it in the past, and the key is unklus. Unklus translates the very same word, the shorash, sadi, ches, kuf, differently when it comes to Avram and Sarah, and that is the insight. The angels then come to Stome. Lot is sitting at the... I'm sorry, I skipped the part, because it's the part we're going to go back and discuss. Avram tries to intercede on behalf of Stome. We're going to talk about that momentarily. Avram objects and protests to the Rebona Shalom that says, you can't do it. You can't do it. And then we have that negotiation, 50, 45, 40, and so on and so forth. Avram is unsuccessful in that negotiation, and Sodom is destroyed. Lot is told that he's not allowed to turn around. Even Lot is saved. But he's told he and his wife can't turn around. She, in fact, turns around and suffers the consequence. We're normally taught that the reason you can't turn around is why... We normally learn that you can't turn around because you were guilty of the same thing. Who are you to witness or observe the destruction, the death of those who violated the very same thing as you? Rabbi Salavechik has a different insight. He says what Lot was being told at that moment is, don't turn around. That lifestyle, that behavior, those indiscretions, that poor judgment, that's in your past. Don't turn around. Don't look back 
with some nostalgia. Don't look back missing that life and lifestyle. Don't turn around, only look forward. A very beautiful insight into how we transform our, our lives. Lot's daughters, we have the bizarre interaction. Lot's two daughters, they seem to practice this uh, incest. You read the section, you can't even identify or understand. This we talked about last year in the Parsha class, which you can listen to at length, where Lot's two daughters actually acted nobly. They thought, just like God had destroyed the world once with the Mabul and Noah was the only survivor, God had destroyed the world again, their father and they were the only survivors, and though it would take this grotesque act, they were willing to endure it so that they could provide continuity to the world. Obviously they were terribly mistaken, but that was their intent, and there's a lot more to talk about, we talked about it last year. Avram goes to Gerar, Sarah is abducted, Avimelech appeases Avram and Sarah. This is a repeat of a similar story that we've seen before. Finally, Sarah conceives, gives birth, and then once she has her child, she feels that Yitzchak being exposed to Yishmael, Yishmael is a contaminating influence. She expels them from the house. Avram listens to everything Sarah says and goes along with that expulsion, even though it's his own child. We have the uh, tenth trial at the end of the parsha which is the famous story of the Akedah, which obviously we're not going to go into now, but is worthy of great uh, analysis, the story of the Akedah itself. Okay, we're going to go back and look at, we're going to start from, Perak Yerches Pasuk chapter 18, verse 17, it appears in the Art Scroll, Chapter 18, verse 17, page 80, page 80. Okay, what's going on over here? So I know it seems like we're in the middle of the story, and we are, but this is at the conclusion of the angel's visit, where they inform Avram and Sarah about the fact that they're going to have a child. And uh, again, if you look at the Pasuk before, V'techachesh Sarah le'mor lo tzachakti ki yarea v'yomar lo ki She denies that she laughed. But he said, no, you in fact indeed laughed. And then the men got up and they looked down towards Sodom. We see from here the mitzvah of Levaya, that you have to walk guests out. Avram doesn't just say goodbye to these visitors, but he escorts them, he walks them out. And as Avram's walking them out, where are they looking? What are they looking at? They're looking down at Sodom and that's where we pick up. set up over here. Okay. So that's where we pick up. Pasuk Yitzayin. Vashem Amar HaMechasa Ani Me'Avraham Asher Ani Yoseh Like a Lashon Bitmia Rashi says. Bitmia means with wonder. Rhetorically. God says Look, I'm about to do something drastic to the world. I'm about to do a major event. I gotta give Avraham a heads up. How could I possibly conceal HaMechasa can I conceal from Avram what I'm going to do? Rashi writes, Bitmia, Asharaniyo Sebistom, Loya Felilasos Davashalomidaito, Anina Satilos Aratazos, Vachamisha Krachim Halalu Shaloin. I promised Avram this is his land. These five cities, the original five towns, these five cities, Shanemar, they're, they're five towns, there's no, 
There was no reference. These are five cities. Five. It's another word for town. There was no uh, nothing negative. No negative connotation being said. So God says, "I promised Avram this land. It's within its breath. I walked with him on it. He made a kenyan on it, and he owns all these cities and towns and villages within." So how can I destroy five cities and I'm not going to tell him, says Rashi? Karasiya so Avram av hamon goyim v'ashmiraz abanim v'lo'odiya la'av she'o'avai. I changed his name. I called him the father of all nations. He's not just the father of the Jewish people. The reason that a ger, a convert, is able to say at the beginning of Shemona Esrei, Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, we describe God as Elokei Elokei Avoseinu. So the convert, how could they say They don't descend from Avram. How can the convert say in Brachos that they are commanded? How can they use this language? So the Gemara learns it's from the fact that Avram is given the name, the Hey Avraham, Av Hamon Goyim, that Avram is associated with all nations. So not only the genetic descendants of Avram, but those who choose to join his mission and cause also spiritually descend from Avram, so much so. What, what name do we give a convert in their ksuba when we call them up for an aliyah? Ben Avram Avinu or Bas Avraham Avinu? And there's no problem with their saying, they too descend from Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So God says, I gave Avram this new name. I told him he's the father of the world. What am I going to go wipe out these five cities, his children, and not tell him? Particularly Shehu Ohavai, I love him. I love him. And when you love someone, you don't keep secrets from them. They're a confidant. You share. You think through. Next pasuk. V'avraham hayo yiyeh legoi gadol v'atzum v'nivrechu bo kol In fact, Avram, I promised him, and in fact will be true, Avram is going to be a great nation, and I'm going to through him bless all of the, all of the world. So how can I not share with him what I'm about to do? And what's he about to do? Pasukites. Ki idativ l'ma'an asher yitzaveh ezbanov ve'ezbeso acharav v'shamru derech Hashem la'asot stako mishpot l'manavi Hashem al Avraham eis asher diber alav. And here we have the secret to God's love, God's deep and profound affection for Avram Avinu. So God says, I'm about to do something enormous in the world. I love Avram and there's implications for him. If you love somebody and you're going to do something, there's implications, then you share it with them. So I can't possibly withhold this from Avram. And parenthetically, the text says, why does God love Avram? Where does that affection come from? And what would you expect the text to answer? Why does God love Avram? Because Avram revolutionized the world. Avram introduced the entire world to ethical monotheism. There were monotheists before him, but they kept it to themselves. And Avram shares it with everybody. So Hashem, one would think, says, why do I love Avram? Why do I cherish the relationship? And why do I shower affection on him? He brought me to this world. He's transformed the world with monotheism. Is that what it says? No. Why does God love Avram? Because whatever one accomplishes and achieves outside their home, what matters most is what happens inside their home. Hanefesh asher asu True, Avram 
created thousands of converts and followers and disciples. But God says, that's nice. That doesn't impress me. That's not important to me. What matters to me is Bonav as Beso Acharav. Did he bring my values to his children? Is there continuity within his very family? Let's look at some of them before Shem Rashi. Ki dativ lashon chiba. It's a language of affection. Kemo modal isha. We're going to talk about this Thursday night on our racy conference call. But the Torah's word for intimacy, what it means for a husband and wife to be intimate, va'adam yada eschava ishto. That language, dalad ayin hey. To know is to love. The greatest knowledge one can have of another, the greatest connection, the greatest love, the greatest knowledge, the greatest access, the greatest exposure, the greatest connection, is that act of intimacy. So that word, Laman Yidativ, the same root, Dalit Ayin, hey, Laman Yidativ, means Chiba. God says, I love him. The reason I'm intimate with him, the reason I have this affection towards him, just like Modalisha, when you love someone, you give them access to who you are. One of the biggest challenges in marriages are people who are shut down. You know, they're just roommates. But you don't allow the person into your inner thoughts, your inner fears, your inner dreams, your inner struggles, your inner anxieties. Sometimes you let them in too much and they want you to you know, turn it down a little bit, shut it off. But sometimes in a relationship there's a barrier where you say, let me into your world. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know how you're feeling. When you in fact love someone and feel affection, then you want in their world and you allow them into your world. Why does God love Avram? He commands His children to observe our path. To observe our path. Okay, look at. Um, look at the Ramban, Laman Yedativ. Loshan Rashi. Arida Tanir Kitar Gemot, Loshan Chiba, Kamamodal Isha. First, the uh, Ramban, as he often does, quotes Rashi. Vanochon Be'enai, in the second paragraph, She Yediya Bo Mamish. So Rashi said the language of knowledge here is meant euphemistically to really describe affection and closeness. Says the Ramban, it's not only meant euphemistically, it's meant literally that those who are more lowly, we only know God in a general sense. God's the creator of the universe. He's the omnipotent divine providence of the universe. But the more righteous one is, the closer they are connected, the more details they have in understanding and interpreting the knowledge they have access to about how and why God runs the world. No one ever can say they know with certainty the answer. No one should proclaim, I don't care how righteous or great they are, this is why Hashem did what He did. But says the Ramban, here the knowledge is not, not meant euphemistically, it's meant literally that God is awarding Avram with knowledge of His ways to reciprocate for Avram's loyalty and love towards Him. So Rashi Ramban, is it meant euphemistically or is it meant, or is it meant literally? What is this, the, the Pasuk charges, Laman 
Ki dativ I know, Ashi Yitzave as Bonavez Beso Akharov. Yitzave as Bonavez Beso Akharov. What what is this? What exactly is 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 uh, is Avraham? What is the charge that Avraham is giving to his children? So the Rambam, what is this derech Hashem? Shamru derech Hashem. Avraham has taught his children derech Hashem. Well, that sounds pretty generic. What is the derech Hashem that Avraham? What's the secret? If we want God to love us, what must meet we transmit to our children and grandchildren? that Avram successfully transmitted, that earned the love and affection of Hashem. What is this derech Hashem that the Pasuk is referring to? So the Rambam, at the end of the first parak of Luchos Deus, the Rambam in this parak, the first parak, is laying out his famous golden mean. Parak Aleph, Allah Dalad. Ha-derech ha-yashara yimida beinonish b'chol deya v'deya mikol deya sh'yesh lo la'adam. You know what the proper path is? In life, the Rambam is the king of moderation. Never do things in the extremes. Take the golden mean. Just live a moderate life. It means you should be equally distant from both extremes, going down that middle path. A person should always be moderate. Don't be extreme. You know, extremists can waver in any direction. Today they're extreme that way, and tomorrow they'll be extreme that way. I know people who were extreme. They became very religiously turned on, and they became an extremist. And overnight, they walk away from from right? And they are extremely not from. Because when you live your life in the extremes, you run the risk of whatever that extreme of the day is becomes replaced by another extreme. It says the Rambam, the Rambam endorses, do not take extreme positions, first of all, with all the qualities and all the character traits that exist in life. Don't be extreme, be moderate. The Rambam has two exceptions. What are the Rambam's two exceptions? Anyone know? If you're doing a bad thing, you've got to go to the opposite side. Okay, so one thing he talks about going to the opposite extreme in order to bring the equilibrium, but there the goal is to get back to the equilibrium into the golden mean. Where is the goal to never be in the golden mean, but to always be extreme? The Rambam says two things. Number one, extremely humble. Arrogance is such a negative quality that when it comes to arrogance, you have to be extremely, exceedingly humble. And number two, anger. Anger is so self-destructive that you have to be extreme in your sense of forbearing and patient to never get angry. Anyway, where does the Rambam learn this from? Where does the Rambam talk about this golden mean? He talks about it for several halachas. And at the end of the first paragraph, the first parak, he says the following. How do you accustom yourself to live this moderate life? Habit. The Rambam endorses habit. We are creatures of habit. If you form the correct habits, you'll be leading a wonderful life. So repeat, repeat, repeat again, being moderate in your thoughts, in your emotions, in your actions, in your behaviors, in your feelings. And if you repeat it over and over again, you'll end up the golden mean, you'll end up being moderate. And he says, Nikre zu, derech zu, derech Hashem. Being a moderate person. 
being calm, being benachas, being contemplative, being thoughtful, being moderate, that's called derech. That's the way of Hashem. Hashem doesn't want you to be extremist. And says the Rambam, that's what our Pesach talking about. When God is so loving towards Avram, because He says, why does Avram deserve my love? Because He has successfully transmitted Derech Hashem. And we have, what's, the derech, what's the secret Derech Hashem? Says the Rambam. What did Avram successfully transmit that endeared him to Hashem? This golden mean. And a person who always is moderate and thoughtful and balanced and equal and not extremist, you're going to bring good and blessing to yourself. Okay? So the Rambam says, what is this golden, what is this Derech Hashem that our Pasuk is referring to? Says the Rambam, that is the golden mean that he famously endorses. Rabbi Salavechik also has an insight here, and it's Chomesh, the Rav Chomesh. And says Rabbi Salavechik. Says Rabbi Salavechik. L'mana she'etzava es bonav. Avraham introduced the covenantal community. The covenant was signed and sealed by God and imposed an obligation not only on man but on God as well, involving each side of the covenant. Was it unconditional? Did Avram have to meet certain conditions and obligations? The answer is clear. Certain definite conditions were introduced, as we find here. Avram has to transmit all of his teachings to future generations. If, he leaves, if Avram leaves no will, there's no obligation by God to uphold the covenant. So last week's parsha, we had the Brisbane Absarim. We have this covenant, we have this contract between Avram and Hashem. Avram promises to transmit these values to his children, to create a legacy, to transform the world. And God promises to shower upon him blessing, to give him a great name. Through you, the nations of the world will be blessed, and so on and so forth. What happens in any contract? Often there's a contract, often there's a clause, I'm not a lawyer, you didn't need me to tell you that to know that. But often there's a clause in contracts that says if one party breaks the contract, the contract is null and void. Says the Rav, the bris ben absarim, if it would be violated from one side, it would be null and void. So if Avram failed to transmit the values and the principles and the lifestyle to his offspring, then Hashem would say, I'm not bound by my side of the contract either. And that's what's going on here. Avram has to leave this will, the contract, to his children. Continues the Rav. Every member of the covenantal community must leave two wills. This is such a beautiful insight. To be a Jew means to concern ourselves with the end of our life, leaving two wills. A material will, in which we dispose of personal wealth and belongings, and a spiritual will, in which we pass in the mandate to adhere to the Derech Hashem. Hashem declares, He, Avraham, will entrust the spiritual treasure to his children and is therefore worthy of the covenant. According to the Rambam, the word mitzvah means not merely a commandment, but is synonymous with the word tzavah. If the spiritual will had not been carried out, the covenant would have been terminated. So if you hear, if you go to Israel, you want to go to a lawyer, you want a will, you want a tzavah. A tzavah is a will. But we also have not only the will that describes how our assets should be divided, but we also encourage people to write a spiritual tzavah, an ethical will. There's a sefer I once saw, which is a collection of some of our greatest gedolim's ethical wills. 
their tzava to their children of what is the spiritual legacy, what are the values they want to lead. So is it just a nice thing to have a spiritual will? I, I would venture to say everyone in this room has probably been to a lawyer to do estate planning and to form it. If you haven't, you should go. When you leave this class, the best school for Arichas Yamim, the biggest school to live a long life is to take care of what will happen after you die. I don't know where it says that. I'm telling you that's the biggest school. <laughs> if you love your children, you'll take care of it. Because the alternative is, God forbid, you know, death doesn't always come on schedule. There are tragic, tragic circumstances. And if you love your children, you will not leave a gaping hole where they have to fight and argue and guess what you would have wanted. So take care of it. Leave a, a uh, ethical, leave a, a halachic living will and a halachic will to dispose of your assets. And until now you would have said, it's a nice idea, write a spiritual will. Write a letter to your children and grandchildren about what you held dear and what matters to you and what you care about and so on. You know, some people combine the two wills in the sense that they make the inheriting of the assets dependent, conditional on certain things. Some people have in their will that if a child, grandchild marries a non-Jew, they don't get the inheritance. I know somebody who's not particularly observant, but he wanted his grandchildren to have strong Jewish identity and values. He put in his will that a condition to the grandchildren having access, again, I don't know the legalities of this, this is what he told me, that they have to go on March of the Living. If they don't go on March of the Living, they can't... So a person can combine the notion of the will and the spiritual will. But until now, you would have said a spiritual will is a nice idea. You write a letter with what mattered to you. Says Rabbi Salavetsha, quoting the Rambam, No! L'manashi yitzavez bonav. Yitzavez lashon tzavah. Avram didn't just say, here's how you're going to divide up the camels and the donkeys and the tents and the nose rings. He said, here's my tzavah to you. L'manashi yitzavez bonav es beso acharav. Avram left an ethical will. And Hashem says, you hold up your part of the bargain, you keep your side of the contract, I'm in. I'll keep up mine. Had Avram not been successful, had Avram not left the ethical will, Hashem had the right, according to a clause in the contract of the covenant of Brisbane Absarim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have said, null and void. Avram, I'm just finishing the Rav, Avram was the first teacher, not to a few, but to tens of thousands, as the Rambam writes in Nochazavodah The community organized around Avram consisted of students. The main aspect of the community was the teacher-pupil relationship rather than the biological father-son relationship. Avram's responsibility was to see to it that there was someone to pass on the tzava, to create a community of teachers and students, a community of Mesorah. Avram gave Yitzchak the responsibility for this teaching. Yitzchak then passed it on to Yaakov. Okay. The Rav has another insight here, which is, what's this doing here? Hashem wants to tell Avram about destroying stone. So tell him about destroying stone. What's with the whole prelude of the love and affection? What's going on? So says the Rav, the angels took their leave of Avram heading towards stone. And then it repeats the same information. Why is this verse, how Avram influenced his followers to act with virtue and righteousness, inserted between these two verses that say the same thing? Furthermore, Michal was the angel who informed Avram of the birth of Yitzchak, while Gavriel was sent to destroy stone. Why did Gavriel accompany Michal to Avram's home? Those are the Rav's questions. And he answers, 
It was only after the angel Gavriel saw how Avram's household and his loyal followers shared his vision of virtue and righteousness that he could proceed to destroy Stom. The contrast between Avram's household and the evil of Sodom convicted that city. So Avram, it's fascinating. Avram, it's an unintended consequence of his righteousness. But Avram's righteousness drew the tremendous contrast with stone. So Kodesh Baruch might have been more tolerant of stone and allowed it to fly. But once he saw Avram, such virtue, such righteousness, that contrast indicted, convicted the city of stone. And that's what the text is trying to tell us, says the Rav, why the angel seeing what's going on in Avram's house, is smack put right in, in between the angels heading to stone and the continuation of the stone story. Because it's that contrast which ultimately is what indicted the city of stone. Let's keep going, because we've not really even started with what I wanted to do. Vayom Hashem, Pasuk Chav. Pasuk Chav. Did I cover everything there? Yeah. Pasuk Chav. Vayom Hashem, Za'aka Sedom va'amora ki rabah, v'chatasam ki chavda ma'od. What happens? Hashem says, since the cry of Stom and Amora has become great, since their sin has become very grave, their cry is Rabbah, it's great. The Chatasam, their poor judgment is great. Therefore, It's time for me to descend and see whether according to her cry, which has come to me, they have done. In other words, this cry, this news flash that I got about what's going on in Sodom, time for me to come down and check it out. Vim lo And if not, and if not, I will know. Let me come see what's happening. Let me come see what's happening. What is this language? Let me come down and see. What's going on here? Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. It's got to come down. Takes the elevator, the escalator, climbs down a rope. How does Hashem get down here? Erda, let me come down and see. Rashi quotes, So says Rashi, this is a lesson for judges. Don't take anyone's word, investigate. You have to see for yourself. You can't just get a text or a tweet. Or someone testifies to you and then you make a decision of grave consequence. To judge a situation properly, you got to see it for yourself. And that's what Hashem was trying to emulate for us. Let me go check it out. Word has it, Sodom is a pretty horrible place. Word has it, it's time for me to erase them from the globe. But you know what? Before I do it, let me come down and check it out. The Svarno has a different interpretation. Look at the Svarno. Ereid l'sof tachlis rish'am shu mukhan l'tseis meroel rakinin hava nerda v'nevla sam svasam k'mashi izbar l'mala Erda doesn't mean let me go down as in God is in heaven and he has to come down to earth to see it firsthand. For the Svarno, it's not Hashem coming down. Erda means let me investigate just how deep their evil runs. So it's not a geographic description. Hashem is coming from above down here to earth. For the Svarno, that was Rashi. For the Svarno, Erda means, let me 
plumb the depths of how deep this wickedness and this evil actually go. The Yorachayim has a comment here as well. Says the Yorachayim, Erda tzarech ledas om lashen yirida. The whole world is like a mustard seed before God. It's tiny, it's a little speck. God has to come down, go up, sideways. He fills the whole world with His glory. So why is the Torah specifically employing this language as if, Erda, let me go down. And He says, let me check out whether what I've heard is true. Whether what you've heard is true. You're all-knowing, omnipotent, all be, you, you have access to everything in real time as it happens, before it happens. What kind of doubt is there in Hashem's mind that He feels He has to check it out? So the Yorachayim quotes Rashi, that Hashem was teaching us, that if you're dying, you got to check it out. This same language happened with the Dora Flaga. God says, I hear there's a group of people, they're building a tower, they're trying to pierce the heavens. Vayirat Hashem, God came down, checked it out, and then scattered the people of the Tower of Bavel. What's the same language we keep finding? Vayirat Hashem with the Tower of Bavel, Erdana now with Sidom. What's going on? Says the Orachayim, Achena Kavonehi, Kyodia Hashem Asedra Shiz Nahik Boim Anivroim, Lutzara Chesed Varachamim. Says the Yorachayim, God interacts with the world in two ways. He has a midas adin and a midas There is the voice of strict justice. Justice doesn't tolerate compassion. Compassion and justice are a contradiction. If you're just and you're committed to do what's just, there's no room to show compassion. So God has these two perspectives. And the voice of strict justice says that if a person acted inappropriately, the consequence should be swift and without delay. So what happens though? If you start talking to Hashem, and defending yourself and getting into it so that it's going to be hard for Hashem to exact the Midas Adin because, you know, you're the parent and you say this is going to be the consequence. The moment the child starts crying and please don't and I promise and you can't and it's going to be terrible for me, it invokes a sense of compassion. It softens you up. So, says the Yorachayim, when Hashem says I'm coming down, it means from the perspective of strict justice, from my porch in heaven, they're acting very inappropriately, they deserve to be killed. However, my Midas Rachamim says, let me understand their behavior in context. True, if I look at it objectively, what they're doing is deserving of death. But if I see it in context, and I see that others are also misbehaving, maybe I'll have a greater sense of Rachamim. So it's an expression of God's loving kindness, His patience, His Midas Rachamim, that the language of Erdana, let me come down and check it out. That is the Orachayim HaKadosh. Rav Shimon Schwab Zatzal in the Sefer on Chumash has a similar insight, I don't think he quotes the Orachayim, has a similar insight to the Orachayim. 
And he shares this insight in the context of the spies. Pasuk says when it comes to the Meraglim, Pasha Shlach, How long are they going to antagonize me? They report, they return from this uh, investigation of the land, and Hashem is so disappointed, He tells Moshe, I can't take it anymore. How long will they provoke me and antagonize me? I'm going to annihilate them. That's it. I've had it. Just like the Mabul, and just like stone, and now it's the Maraglum's time. And Moshe challenges Hashem and pleads for their lives. And he gives a similar argument that he did with the Egel Azov, and he says, if you destroy your children, it's going to be a terrible Chil Hashem. Don't do it. You created a world in order to share your presence. If you destroy your children, the Maraglim ultimately will reflect poorly on you. It'll set the mission back. It's a chil Hashem. And in both circumstances, the egg of the Maraglim, God forgives His children. So what's the secret? What was Moshe appealing to? That he was successful in getting God to forgive. How do you convince the master of the universe, the omnipotent God, to change his mind? So Shimon Schwab says the following. He talks about our Pasuk right here. That immediately before Avram's negotiated with Hashem over Sodom, it says, Er Navera, let me go down and see. Why did God have to come down? And how did God's coming down open the door for Avram's negotiation? Because if you look at the succession of Sukkim, it sounds like the Er Da, God coming down, is what gave Avram license to begin a negotiation. What's the connection? Says Rav Schwab, Hashem lives above all creation. The world is finite and imperfect. Hashem is infinite and completely perfect. For Hashem, there are no mistakes, there's no errors, there's no indiscretions, there's no failings. And human beings are the exact opposite. We have shortcomings. We all do. We have mistakes and we sometimes fail. So from Hashem's divine perspective of justice, we should be absolutely accountable for everything. Says Rav Schwab, for forgiveness to occur, for compassion to happen, Hashem has to descend to His world. He has to say, you know what, up here in the heavens where I am perfect, I would kill you in a second when you do something wrong. If I am judging you according to my standard, you've got no shot. So the prerequisite to God being able to forgive us, says Rav Schwab, is what? He's got to come down to this world. God, look around. You created a world with temptation and seduction. God, look around. You created people who fail and who struggle and who who don't always succeed. So Hashem, yes, I did something wrong. And true, if you judge me by the standard of heaven, I don't have a chance. But come down here and look around this world, the world you created, that's filled with temptation and desire, in which everyone struggles. And only from the perspective down here can God find a way to forgive. And that's what Moshe understands. That the, to petition Hashem, he has to invite Hashem down to the world. And that's what he's saying. See the chil Hashem that will ensue. So says Rav Schwab, it's not a coincidence. I'm giving you a Dvar Torah for next Elul now. It's not a coincidence that before we recite the Yud Gimel Midos HaRachamim, throughout all of Slichos, on Yom Kippur, Ni'ila, over and over and over and over, we repeat that magic formula, the Yid Gimel Midos Arachim, Hashem, Hashem, Kiarachim, V'chanun. What do we always say right before we repeat it? What do we say? Vayered Hashem Ba'anan. Vayered Hashem Ba'anan. Hashem, forgive me. And I understand that you can only forgive me if you come down here. 
Look at it from my perspective. Look at it from my angle and the challenges that I have. So that's what's going on here. Erdana. Hashem is coming down to check out what's going on. Ultimately, what he sees doesn't satisfy him. He destroys Storm anyway. Vayered Hashem. That's why he came down with Migdal Bavel. That's what Hashem, Moshe, is arguing to Hashem. Tachil Hashem. Don't look at it from the perspective up there. Look at it from the perspective down here. That is a very powerful lesson. That if you, in relationships, if we hold people to our standard and we judge them exclusively from our perspective, we'll be very unforgiving. But if we can get in their shoes and look at it through their eyes and understand what they're battling, we'll become much more forgiving people. And if Hashem has the capacity of Yerida, Erdana, if Hashem can come down a level to see what someone's going through and be forgiving, then we too have the capacity to come down a level to see what someone's going through and to be more forgiving. So a beautiful insight of Rav Schwab, what's going on here with the Erda. So what happens? The angels take leave, they head towards Tom. And Avram is not going anywhere. Rashi says, They took leave to the, from the place that Avram had escorted them to. Rashi is bothered by a stira. What do you mean? Avram is still standing in front of Hashem. Hashem is the one who came to visit Avram. Remember when, when Avram said, could you give me five minutes? It's a long five minutes. Could you give me five minutes? Okay, Rashi deals with that. But look at the Sforno. It says the Sforno, the Avraham Odenu Omeid. The angels already have arrived in stone. The mission is about to begin. But Avram Odenu Omeid, he is stubbornly protesting. He refuses to take leave. He's standing there. As Chazal say, You can have a sharp knife, a sword, hovering above your neck, never stop davening. It ain't over till it's over. So the angels have already arrived in stone. They're about to carry out their mission. And Avram Odenu made stubbornly protesting, even in the 11th hour, he refuses to give up. And here we have the debate, the negotiation between Avraham and Hashem. We're going to pick up with this next year because it deserves much more. But I want to just end with a couple quick thoughts. I see Rabbi Moskowitz walks in and everybody should continue with his year. But very quickly. First of all, from here you see something very powerful. You see... Faith does not mean passive acceptance. I've said this many times before and I'll say it many times because as people go through tragedy and struggle and hardship in life, they somehow think that Torah demands of them to blindly accept what's happening as the will of Hashem. Avram didn't. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't. And our greatest teachers throughout our history didn't. In fact, to protest is an even greater expression of faith than to be passive. Because if you're passive, maybe you believe in God, maybe you don't, you know, whatever. You just accept. But you only protest to someone who you really think is in charge. You only protest to someone who you really think can make a difference. So someone you love is struggling with illness and you daven and daven and daven for them, that's a form of protest. What you're saying to the Ribbono Shalom is, it's not okay. I don't accept it. 
Does that mean you don't believe in Hashem? It means you really believe in Hashem. Because you're trying to influence the omnipotent being who can really change things. So Avraham, with this protest, gives us an incredible license that we can in fact protest. The other night, we had our social action committee, Sarah Brudnoy, Stewie Wax. We had a, a protest, a rally against the recent UNESCO resolution. Who were we rallying against? Was it the mass media coverage that we got? The paparazzi in the back of the room? There was neither. So was it a waste of time? Why did we bother? The answer, Rabbi Friedman mentioned this on Shabbos, the Chal Shivas, because the most important recipient of our voice of protest is present at every single rally. He's present at every minion and act of davening, of tefillah. And that is the Ribbonu Shalom. Like Avram Avinu, sometimes he sets the world in a particular trajectory and he's waiting for our objection. And when we're passive, it's not an expression of faith. It's a counterfeit moment of faith. Genuine faith is to say, God, I object. I protest. This is not how you taught me the world should run. And if I'm wrong, I accept whatever you do in the end, but I don't accept it without protest. So that's point number one. We'll pick up with that next year. But the last thing I want to leave you with, tomorrow night, Thursday, our Shlomo Karabach's Yerzeit. So there's a uh, safer Evan Shlema of Shlomo Karabach on Bracious. It's only on Bracious through Toldos. So very, very quick he has in here. Which was the first prayer ever answered in the world? I'm reading to you from Rav Shlomo's book. Which was the first prayer ever answered in the world? Says Rav Shlomo, listen to the deepest depths. Now you know I'm reading to you from Rav Shlomo. Listen to the deepest depths. The first time God answered a prayer, it was a secret. Do you know how much Avram and Sarah were praying for a baby? Unbelievable. It's not even mentioned in the Torah how much they prayed for Yitzchak. When Yitzchak and Rivka were praying for their children, it says, Vayatar Yitzchak Lashem. Yitzchak prayed to God to have a child. But with Avram Avinu, it does not say he prayed for Yitzchak. But Gevalt, Gevalt was he praying. So when the angels came and they told him, God heard your prayer. You'll have a son and Sodom will be destroyed. Avram said, Ah, if God listens to prayer, I'm going to pray for Sodom as well. Isn't that a beautiful insight of Rabbi Shlomo? The Torah never spells out that Avram davened. But boy, did he and Sarah daven. So when the angels come and say, your prayer was answered, Avram says, ooh, that really works. Tefillah works? Well, then I'm not just going to accept that stone's going to be destroyed. If Tefillah really works, then he continues immediately to then pray for stone. We'll pick up with it next week. We'll pick up with Vayera next year. Everyone is invited and encouraged to stay for Rabbi Moskowitz, say for Malachim.